Good morning. Welcome to Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Thank you for joining us as we study through God's Word. Well, turn with me in your Bibles now to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25, as we progress our way through this wonderful book. And we're just going to jump right in here, beginning at verse 1. It says, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Then Samuel died died and friends this was a significant significant day in the life of the israelites samuel who was the last of the judges in israel he was the preeminent prophet and leader of the nation the spokesman for god he was the conscience of the nation of israel He was the first prophet in the era of the kings and the man who had anointed both Saul and David. And he has now died. And this this verse tells us that the whole nation gathered together to mourn for him, to lament for him, to express their deep grief and sorrow together and it's important to understand just how significant a loss this would have been friends there hadn't been a man who had had such a marked influence upon the entire nation since the days of moses and joshua and they owed him a significant debt of gratitude but as i did some extra research surrounding the events of Samuel's death when it says that the Israelites gathered together there were two people that would have very likely been conspicuous by their absence and that's David and Saul As Warren Wearsby put it, he says, Since Saul and Samuel had been alienated for over seven years, it's not likely that the king attended the funeral. But he would call on Samuel for help even after the prophet was dead. Now that's a little bit of a cliffhanger that you'll see when we get to chapter 28. And even though there appeared to be a reconciliation that we saw last week between David and Saul, it still would have been far too dangerous for David to attend because there would have been those who were loyal to Saul who still wished to do him harm. And so we see in verse 1 here that David actually heads in the opposite direction. He heads about 100 miles south of En Gedi to the wilderness of Paran. And so we see an end of an era here with the death of Samuel. And friends, this is a great opportunity for us to remind ourselves of a very important principle. God's work is never dependent on one man or one woman. 
God was raising up David now to become the leader of Israel. That's what this whole process has be, that we've been watching David go through has been about. And verse 1 says, Samuel died and David arose. But God was also raising up a prophet in Gad who we met briefly in chapter 22. And God was raising up another prophet in Nathan. And they were to take over in place of Samuel. God will always raise up another man. It's not, not all dependent. Like, what are we going to do now? Billy Graham's died. Who's going to be the world evangelist? Well, maybe God doesn't need an evangelist of that kind. That was for that time frame. But God will always raise up somebody. So now, David has traveled into the wilderness of Paran, which will be in the south, in the, what would be now the Negev Desert. And interestingly enough, where David fled to is where the children of Israel would have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, if you look with me at verse 2, we're introduced to two new characters. Now, there was a man from Man whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and his, wife, his name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Now just to bring some uh, clarification here, we see the name of the town is Carmel. And it's important to make a distinction between Carmel, the town here in the south of uh, Israel in Judah and Mount Carmel which is in the extreme north of Israel and so Carmel the town was in the area near Mon and in that town there lived a very wealthy man named Nabal and his wife Abigail and verse 2 tells us that they had 3,000 sheep a thousand goats and that they were shearing them in Carmel now, friends, in those days, you had ranchers who raised sheep and goats for food. And you had ranchers who raised sheep and goats for their wool. And Nabal would have been one of the latter. Now, much like farmers would have a, a celebration when they brought in their harvest, the ranchers would also have a shearing festival as they harvested their wool. And so this is what was beginning to happen here in Carmel. And so here you have a man and a wife mentioned who couldn't be more opposite from one another. I mean, look at the description of them in verse 3. It says the man's name was Nabal. Now, do you know what the name Nabal means literally in the Hebrew language? Fool. Now, I'm not sure who would name their child Fool or whether this might have even been a nickname for all we know. <clears throat> but his name was Fool. But look how he's described. He's described as harsh, evil in his doings, 
and of the house of Caleb, or a Calebite. And though the word Caleb can be interpreted as faithful, wholehearted, bold, and brave, you know, we think of Joshua and Caleb. But the Hebrew word for dog can also imply faithfulness. And so in the context given here, it seems to be referring to him as behaving like a dog. And thus you could easily interpret this as being of the house of dogs. In other words, Nabal was not a very nice guy. Well, let's contrast Nabal with his wife, Abigail. She, on the other hand, was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. And the Hebrew word for good understanding is tob, which would mean that she was intelligent, she was agreeable, she was pleasant. But what I find more interesting is the word used for beautiful appearance. And in Hebrew, the word is iftar. which literally translated means lovely of shape. But what makes this so interesting is that this word is only used two other times in the entire Old Testament. And it's used in Genesis 29, verse 17, referring to the beauty of Rachel. And in Esther 2, 7, referring to the beauty of Esther. So the use of this particular word to describe her beauty puts her in rare company. Both Rachel and Esther were known for their exquisite beauty and character. There was none fairer than Esther in the land. And if that's not enough for you, Abigail's name means my father's joy. So what it's really saying is that Abigail's countenance is beautiful both inside and out. So what a contrast between them. And it will become evident as we continue. And I mean, you have to ask the question, how did these two ever even get together? But verse 4 says, When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men and, men, and David said to the young man, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David, <clears throat> so when David's young man came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. 
So we can see here that the shearing is begun, and what that suggests to us is that this was happening in the springtime. And once the shearing was underway, most sheep owners, they were in a very generous mood. They had a real festive spirit because now they were going to reap this great reward for all their hard labor. And so it was for that reason that David chose that moment to send greetings to Nabal. And David chose ten young men and sends them to, to Nabal and he says, greet him in my name. Meaning his name should probably mean something. And the literal, literal translation in Hebrew means to ask of him in my name of peace. So David sends young men young men so as not to come across as intimidating or demanding. And David sends them with a cordial message to ensure a peaceful interaction. <coughs> In fact, he instructs the young men to impart a trifecta of blessing and peace upon him. He says, peace upon him personally, peace upon him and his household, and peace upon all that he possesses. But we also learn that David had been performing a valuable service to Nabal. David had been providing protection for Nabal's flocks and for his shepherds. And David and his men had ensured their safety from the plundering nomads that would like to show up, especially at harvest time, and steal what wasn't theirs and not have to do any work and just walk away. And David was ensuring that not only were they protected, but that the harvest was being protected. Now you've got to understand, David is a retired shepherd himself. And he understands this lowly occupation. And he made certain that Nabal received a full accounting of his resources. And he even presents eyewitness testimony of all that he had done on behalf of Nabal. He says, look at, ask your shepherds, tell them what I did. They'll tell you. But I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, I want you to notice when David came to Nabal. David did not approach Nabal until the harvest was actually taking place. David wasn't looking for an advance on services rendered. He had already <laughs> done the service. He waited until the harvest so that he could share in the bounty and the generosity that was allocated at that time. But I also want you to notice what specifically he was asking him for. You know, David, David didn't come to Nabal and give him a big list of demands and say, I want X number of this.
He didn't have a specific quota that he was asking for. In fact, David only asked Nabal for whatever he could afford or whatever was on hand. What you can spare. David was only asking for a minimal amount of supplies so that he could provide for the 600 men that were in his care. My friends, David had every right to demand payment for the services that he provided. David and his men had earned the provisions that they were requesting, but David did not come in insisting on his own rights. David came in humbly. David came in gently, peaceably, respectfully. And how does Nabal respond to David's request? Look at verse 10. It says, Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then make my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I don't know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back. And they came and told him all these words. Talk about living up to your name. Nabal, <laughs> dude, what an absolutely foolish thing to say here. He decides to hurl the greatest insult a man could possibly give another man. Who's David? Who's Jesse? Absolutely slam his family. Friends, do you think it even remotely possible that Nabal didn't know who David was? I mean, it was bad enough that Nabal refused to share supplies with David. But for Nabal to actually deny he even knew who David was, and then to add insult to injury, to categorize him as no better than a runaway slave is unthinkable. You know, I can't help but wonder... Was Nabal the subject of the parable of the rich young ruler? Was Jesus thinking or referring to Nabal in Luke chapter 12, verse 20? Was Nabal the man that was so filled with greed? Was he the one who tore down his barns just to build up bigger barns? Was he the one whose soul was to be demanded of him that very night? Because spoiler alert, next time, that's exactly what happens. If it's not him, it is eerily similar, don't you think? But what an incredibly greedy, selfish, an utterly foolish man Nabal is. You know, I love Warren Wiersbe's observation in his book, Be Successful. He points out 
When you note all the personal pronouns in verse 11, you immediately recognize his pride and self-importance. He didn't even give God credit for making him wealthy. Well, David's men return to David and share with him Nabal's response. And to say that David was displeased would be an understatement. Look at it here in verse 13. Then David said to his man, man, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now, I just want to assure you of something here. David was not readying 400 men to go out on a gentle stroll in the desert. David wasn't preparing these men for mere training purposes. David was arming these men for war. David was so absolutely enraged at Nabal's response, and David was coming for blood. Friends, I have to ask you a question at this point. How do you respond when either you have been or you feel like you have been disrespected? How do you respond when your rights have been infringed upon? How often do you prepare for war against those who've wronged you? And how often are you willing to repay evil for evil? You know, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But I particularly like how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, don't let evil conquer you. But conquer evil by doing good. We're told in Scripture to do good to those who despitefully use you. They do it intentionally. And friends, how often do we allow ourselves to be conquered by the evil around us? You know, it's so interesting to see the contrast between chapters 24 and 25 here. I mean, just last week we saw how David showed incredible restraint, incredible kindness, incredible self-control towards Saul. David had every opportunity to take the life of this man who was trying to kill him who is literally hunting him down, who is robbing David of his rights and liberties and freedoms and who is using fear and intimidation to coerce people to assist in that evil quest. But David knew in his heart that God's work needed to be done God's way in God's timing. David knew that God never condones or excuses sin even for a seemingly justifiable cause. 
But David knew that God will never honor actions that go outside the boundaries of his law. And so he knew that taking Saul's life would have been wrong in the eyes of God. And David demonstrated why he was known as a man after God's own heart because he was willing to submit his heart and desires over to God's plan for his life. But now it's like he forgot everything. He did everything right previously, and he's doing everything wrong now. We're seeing a completely different side of David. His blood was boiling with anger, and he wasn't going to take it. Now let's remind ourselves again why David was so angry here. Because he was insulted. Because his pride was wounded. Because someone had taken advantage of his kindness. Because someone had cheated him. You know, friends, I've noticed that we can forgive a plethora of indiscretions. People can do some pretty horrible things to us and we will still be willing to forgive them. However, when someone transgresses against us in a way that damages our pride, well, that's a totally different matter, isn't it? And that's so clearly evident in how David is responding in these circumstances. Friends, we are living in a tremendously challenging time. Everyone is af offended about something. Everyone feels that their rights are being trampled on in some way. Everyone feels that they need to stand up and defend their positions. And there's a real danger for us to react to these circumstances rather than respond. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Listen closely. When we are filling our minds with God's Word, when we're listening to what His Holy Spirit is telling us through that Word, when our focus is on humbly aligning our hearts with God's heart, then, when trials or challenges come, we respond according to God's will and God's heart. However, when we're filling our minds with all the challenges that are around us, when we're allowing our emotions to get us all amped up, and when we allow anger, bitterness, fear, or even pride to fill our hearts, then when these trials and challenges come, we react based on the emotions. You get what I'm saying? And so David stayed very close to the heart of the Lord as it pertained to Saul. David would not even entertain the idea of touching God's anointed. And David responded in a godly fashion towards Saul. However, David allowed hurt and pride and anger to fill his heart. And when he did that, David reacted to that pride and in anger set out to settle 
a score with the law. And friends, it's so important that we understand and we respond to God's unwavering word and his steadfast spirit and that we don't react according to our fickle and deceptive emotions, that we don't allow our anger or pride to influence us in our decision-making as David was clearly doing here. Well, here comes Abigail to the rescue. Look at it here in verse 14. Now one of the young men told Abigail Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master. And he reviled them, but the men were very um, good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them. When we were in the field, they were a wall to us both by night and day all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you will do for harm is determined against our master and against all his household for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. So one of these servants, a young man who had witnessed Nabal's insulting tirade against David and who had also witnessed David's invaluable assistance to them, he comes to Abigail and he informs her of what has transpired and how badly her husband has behaved and that David is coming with vengeance on his mind and he basically tells her, you better do something fast. You better take action because your household or your husband <laughs> has made a mess of things for your household. The young man knew that Abigail was better suited to handle this situation because if they went to Nabal, it would only make matters worse. And so Abigail jumps into action here in verse 18. It says, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sails of roasted grain, that would be approximately 40 liters of grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, see, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under the cover of the hill and there David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. You know, as we established earlier, Abigail was a very smart woman. And when she received this news, she knew she had to move quickly. And so she does what Nabal should have done when David first asked him. She throws together this large offering within a, an extremely short period of time. And all of it were things that she had on hand. She didn't have to go digging which just shows how stingy Nabal was being towards David. But I want you to notice a couple of things here quickly. First of all, she didn't tell her husband. 
Now, I'm not telling you wives that you need to avoid telling your husband things. But she did the right thing. And she did it quickly. And ultimately, she did it to protect all those in her household. Second of all, she went down under the cover of the hill. It means she stayed hidden. That means that David wouldn't see her until they were ultimately face to face. Because she wanted to speak with David directly. She wanted to make a personal appeal to him. She wanted to resolve this conflict personally. I want you to just think of the courage that that would take to try and stop a charging, enraged army. Well, as Abigail is making her way towards David and his men, David is marching swiftly towards Nabal, and he's still brooding over all this. Verse 21, Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that they, that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So David is still furious and vowing to carry out his own judgment on Nabal. In fact, he's making a very ill-advised vow here. Do you see it? Verse 22. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belongs to him by morning light. I like how the New Living Translation renders verse 22. It says, May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Friends, be very cautious about the words you use and the actions you take while angry. Because those are the words and actions that will ultimately bring you the greatest regret. And this is as far as we're able to go this morning, but tune in, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday for this story's conclusion. But as we close this morning, I want to ask you a few short questions. Did God send David out on this quest to kill Nabal? No. David took matters into his own hands. Did David even seek the Lord's heart before heading out on this venture? No, he reacted and then made an emotional decision. Do you think God was pleased with David's angry response here? No, God is never pleased when we sin. Friends, the issue here, it was never about whether David had been wronged. It was never about whether David had his facts straight. It was never about whether David had even accurately interpreted the events. 
Nabal had repaid David evil for good. He had cheated him. He had reviled him. He had insulted him. He had hurt his pride. Guilty. Slam dunk. Friends, the issue here was never about the facts. It was about the heart. And you can be factually accurate and still be far away from God's heart. God's work will never be accomplished in anger. God's work will never be accomplished in pride. God's work will only be accomplished through God's love, through God's heart, and through God's spirit at work in each of our lives. So let's ask him now to do that work in each of our lives this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I know so often I've made very poor decisions because I was angry, because I was hurt, because I was proud and arrogant and thought I knew better. Lord, I need to ask you to forgive me for that. Lord, I need to recognize that your ways aren't the way I would do it. And I'm really thankful for that. Your ways are far higher than mine. Lord, I just pray that you will work in my heart, that you will forgive me, and that you will fill me with your love, fill me with your passion for a world that desperately needs you. Lord, that your spirit will, I'll allow your Holy Spirit to work through my life. I won't try to take things into my own hands. And so Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's wrestling with that, with issues of the heart. The only way we can trust our heart is when we're aligning it with your word and your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we give our lives and our hearts afresh to you this morning. Use them for your service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to message us on our Facebook page or on Instagram. God bless.